be the first to welcome you to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. My name is Keith Giles. I am one of your many co-hosts. I am the author of several books in the Jesus Un series, most recently uh, Jesus Unforsaken, Substituting Divine Wrath with Unrelenting Love, which is a look at penal substitutionary atonement theory and how it's basically nonsense. <laughs> and, um, I, I am joined here by my amazing co-hosts, uh, Katie, Derek, and Matt, say hello to our wonderful guests. Hello, hello, hello. This is Katie Valentine. Uh, happy to be here. I'm the founder of The Metaphysical Christian, one of your co-hosts, and just excited to kick off this new series with everyone. Yeah, and I am Derek Day, the author of Deconstructing Religion, the host of the Forward Podcast, and the blogger at Patheos of Love Minus Religion. And I want to give a quick shout out to the late, great Earl Simmons, a.k.a. Darkman X, a.k.a. DMX, pouring out a henny from a homie. And yeah, yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was sad news. Um, and I am Matt DiStefano, um, author of the recently released Bonfire Sessions uh, paperback edition with a forward by my man, Derek Day. Yes, and I am excited to be done with our hundredth episode. I was a little anxious, but um, excited to be in in our uh, our parable series now. So uh, excited to talk to y'all again. So wait a minute. If this is the heresy heretic happy hour episode one hundred and one, does this make this heresy one hundred and one? Yeah, that's right, baby. Um, yes, <laughs> it is heresy one hundred and one. Yeah, so as I've been told, we have a hotline. And if you want to get in touch, reach out and touch the Heretic Happy Hour crew. You can do so by dialing 240-343-7379. Once again, it's 240-343-7379. And looks like we have a voicemail this week, so please roll that beautiful voicemail footage. Hey, heretics. My name is Aaron. I'm from Texas. And I'm on a journey of deconstruction, reconstruction around my evangelical family. And as I pull away from our tradition of what I've grown up with, uh, I'm still kind of stuck and surrounded by the same old type of stuff that you would expect. And I just can't stand it. The the main one, and this is a part of my question, is as we're coming up to Easter, my mom wants to watch The Chosen, which if you don't know what that is, it's a new series about the life of Jesus and stuff like that. Uh, I could not get through the first episode. It felt like exactly what an American would do with the life of Jesus. Now, I can appreciate the liberties they take with the narrative, but it just feels so American with the dialogue, the acting choices, all all the type of thing. So I'm wondering, uh, have y'all seen it? What do you think? 
Do you like the liberties it takes? Do you care for the accuracy? Do you hate it? Or whatever. Thanks, and thanks for doing the podcast. It's helped me a lot in my journey. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Well, awesome, Aaron. Thank you so much for giving us a a call and to uh, bring that up. Uh, You know what? I have not watched it. I've heard other people kind of talking about it. I I have watched one episode that someone shared uh, online, and it it was the episode where Jesus goes and speaks to the Samaritan woman. And I have to say, actually, um, I mean, I can't, again, I'm not seeing the entire thing. So just judging it on that particular uh, episode that I watched, uh, I kind of liked it, actually. I, I know it takes liberties with the text, of the, with the scripture. But actually, I kind of like that. I kind of like things that take me out of that sort of ex- expectation. Like, you know what I mean? I've seen so many of these stupid, you know, movies about Jesus. And, and I, I'm, I'm actually relieved that, number one, he doesn't look British. He doesn't have blue eyes. Um, he doesn't talk with a British accent, uh, or he doesn't sound like some Shakespearean, you know, trained actor. So uh, all of those reasons, I thought, okay, I kind of like that he just kind of talks like a normal person would would talk if they spoke English and they were in the Middle East. Uh, so you know how how authentic can you get? Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I I liked it. I kind of thought they did a good job, at least again in that particular scene about the Samaritan woman. They did a good job of emphasizing. I thought the right points and they didn't get too religious, whatever. Uh, so again, I, I can't judge the whole thing. Uh, that's all I know, uh, I, but I want to see it. I mean, I was planning to watch it. So I guess I'll let you know what I think after I watch it. I, I haven't seen it yet. I've been watching the Windsor's a parody about the Royal family on Netflix lately. Um, and things like the chosen are part of my, uh, definitely part of my work life. So I just haven't carved out, <laughs> carved out the time for it yet. Um, based on your endorsement, I might not get around to it anytime soon. Although I have a lot of people in my communities who are uh, wild about it. So I'm looking forward to evaluating it one day. Yeah, you know, whenever I need to uh, go and look up the life of Jesus, I go for one of the more thorough biographies like uh, Life of Brian. That's beautiful. Or the series Black Jesus. Oh, that's, that's, the, that's the show right there. That show is so fucking is funny, a, dude. It's the shit. Did it get canceled? It, well, it did, and don't know what they're going to do because, uh, you know, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, John Witherspoon is gone now. Charlie Murphy is gone. And fun fact, you know, Charlie Murphy was one of my Navy buddies. No way. Get out. Yeah. Yep. Oh, man. Do you, wait, so you have an insider tra- track to, like, Dave Chappelle? Yeah. Well, I mean, no, uh, basically, Charlie Murphy was a writer for Dave Chappelle. And right. and he did, and he did these things. Called, I know you're like our six degrees, Derek. Hey man, yeah. give Dave Chappelle. Give Dave Chappelle. We need him on the show. Well, yeah. you know, here, here's here's another fun fact, right? You know, they said that people, most people are six six degrees of separation from the president of the United States. Well, guess what? One of my best friends is a guy named Freddie Jones, who also uh, was uh, in Colin Powell's wedding, who was the chief of staff or, or the national security advisor to what three presidents and secretary of state. So you guys are like two or three degrees of separation from several presidents. Don't right, you Derek. feel special? Yeah, dude. Well, you got, listen, you need to start um, bringing, you know, share the wealth, buddy. You got to bring these guys right. over here. You got to bring, yeah, bring them they in. could be heretics of the week. That's right. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to see if I can, I'll reach out to General Powell. There you go. Yeah, oh, shoot, yeah. him, shoot him a text real quick. Right now. Go on right now. We'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, have you seen the, uh, the show? No, no, I haven't seen the show. I don't plan on the. Uh, you know, I'm glad Derek mentioned Black Jesus 
Because I honestly do not like any of these dramatists. I didn't even, I mean, I know this is blasphemy on this show. I didn't even get into the Messiah. It was okay. Whoa, but I wasn't no. like. Okay, I, I, no. I, I like the Messiah. Everyone, everyone, I like the Messiah. It was, it was fine. It was, was fine. Awesome. Okay. Oh, look at Keith. Woo. Hey, it but was spoiler, awesome. spoiler alert when he shot that dog. <laughs> uh, shh, don't say that. Don't tell him about that. that was, spoiler alert. <laughs> it's so good, man. I love the Messiah. You, I mean, it's right. Uh, Matt, this is your this is your true coming out right here. It's about the yes. yes. I'm more outraged. I'm more outraged by this yes. than anything else you oh, said. Man. This is creating <laughs> outrage porn on the show. Oh, well, gosh. I, I feel uh, like I, we I should. Uh, oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like we should conclude um, this little segment about our all of our TV Jesus porn fantasies and. Um, <laughs> get on to our heretic of the week. And so this is really fun. This is a, a friend and colleague of mine. I think y'all are going to really enjoy it. So let's get on to our interview. Yeah. It's the heretic of the week. Hi, I'm Brandon and I'm a heretic. Hi, Hi Brandon. Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Welcome to Heretic Happy Hour. This is Brandon Robertson. It is such a pleasure to have you here. And we would just love to start with asking you, what makes you a heretic? Why would people call you a heretic? You know, for me, uh, my only answer to that is why Why don't people call me a heretic? Uh, since I was in Bible college, uh, when I was a conservative evangelical, I really just started asking questions and started being willing to um, kind of view God outside of the box of my conservative theology. And like so many people, um, the more I explored, the more I listened to other voices, the more I realized that God was working in ways and in places and in people that my theology didn't have room for. Um, and so today, uh, I, I wouldn't identify even necessarily with uh, being an Orthodox Christian, because Orthodoxy is just uh, a tool of a bunch of uh, men that gathered together in some councils a couple thousand years ago. Um, but I am very committed to following Jesus, whatever that means, um, looking at the red letter, studying what Christ did and who he is. And sometimes I think that takes me outside of the bounds of traditional Christianity and thus actually a heretic. Well, well it's funny about um, this, this term heretic is that you'll get, you'll, you mentioned the term orthodoxy, but at least here in America, most of the people who fling around that label aren't Orthodox, they're Protestants. So it's just interesting um, how that plays itself out when Protestantism didn't arise for 15, 1600 years after Jesus. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, you're absolutely right. I think uh, so many of us on our deconstruction journey, at least I'll speak for myself, I actually did stop by authentic, legitimate orthodoxy for a little bit. And there is so much richness and broadness in that version of theology that Protestants have completely thrown out the window uh, for this really fairly new um, theology that's no more than 500 years old. It's pretty ridiculous. Well, but that's because they kind of look like Catholics. <laughs> right. <laughs> too, too, too many smells, too many smells. But, uh, you know, you're not the... You're not the first person in their deconstruction who has told me that there was like a brief flirtation with orthodoxy um, and then ultimately, though, kind of rejecting the the label of orthodox because maybe that can be too limiting. 
Yeah, totally. I feel like the journey from people that uh, I have spent time around is if you're coming from conservative evangelicalism, you begin your deconstruction probably by stopping by Anglicanism at some point and then moving a little bit further, maybe towards Catholicism, and then you get to Orthodoxy, and then you're just jumping off the deep end after that. uh, And it's a a free fall into whatever people end up being. Um, But yeah, it's it's interesting how... um, so many of us begin the journey of deconstruction and begin the journey of walking outside of evangelicalism in particular by first uh, sticking within pretty traditional, some might argue, uh, the most traditional forms of Christianity, which would be obviously Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and even Anglicanism uh, to some degree. But but yeah, uh, my journey now, I'm Christ adjacent, you might say, uh, when it comes to Christian traditions. But uh, I feel like the people that occupy this space are way more fun and way more open-minded than the kind of Christians that I uh, spent my growing up years around. Now, there's there's uh, one question that I wanted to um, hit you with. It says that you identify yourself as a contemplative Christian. Hmm. Tell us about that. I, I'm really fascinated by that. Yeah, I think for me, that means uh, I, I've been really influenced by the work, uh, like so many others, of Father Richard Rohr, uh, who founded the Center of Action and Contemplation. And I really think that that is; those are the two terms that sum up what Christian life and practice should actually look like. Um, it's a path of contemplation, which for me means it, it's rooted in Jesus' teaching that the kingdom of God is within us, and that the kingdom of God is something that's present here in the world right now. But it takes a sort of spiritual renewal to begin to perceive it, to perceive the presence of God in and through all things and all people in all moments. Um, and that usually, in order to perceive that, comes through practice, um, whether that's prayer, whether that's meditation, um, whether that's going on walks and just trying to uh, slow down and be in the moment. Um, that is what my spiritual practice has primarily looked primarily looked like for the past few years, just being willing to recognize that God is present even when I don't feel God in the same way that I was told I was supposed to when I was a charismatic evangelical. Um, And it's that contemplative posture, it's from that contemplative place that I find the fuel and empowerment to then take action. Um, and so I, I also see Jesus primarily as a socio-political figure uh, in the first century who came with this radical message of how to reorganize our lives and our societies in a way that aligns with God's intended purpose. And it's from that well of energy and grounding that you get in the contemplative life that I feel like uh, we are empowered to be able to actually take the action and begin to reform our own lives and uh, from our own lives, our own cultures and societies, countries, and hopefully world into the vision of what Jesus um, taught was God's economy, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It sounds like you've taken Brother Lawrence's practicing the presence and actually finding God in the moments. And and that's really, that's really beautiful. Totally. And I, I love that book. I, I find a lot of the... Um, a lot of actual contemplative practice is very difficult for me. Um, and I've always felt like a spiritual failure in some senses because I am terrible at actually doing like sit down and meditate for an hour. But um, for me, the contemplative life is that simple. It goes back to Paul 
quoting uh, a pagan poet in the book of Acts saying, in God we live and move and have our being. Like, If we can just cultivate that awareness and actually live consciously with that belief in mind that we're living in and through the presence of God, uh, I find that it helps me actually change my behavior um, and stop being so selfish and egotistical and self-centered and start uh, looking for God in the face of the other and the enemy and the least of these. Um, and so I really do think that that level of contemplative practice or awareness is necessary if you're going to have a sustainable um, movement towards justice and movement towards action and activism in the world. Well, and one of the things I love that that I heard you say is that it's that, you know, the contemplative um, practices actually move you to action. Mm. Yeah, they're not. You, I mean, they're, they're fine in and of themselves, but they're actually I heard you think say, I think that they go hand in hand. Yeah, totally. I think so many of us have this conception, right, of contemplation or meditation or any of those kind of things as, again, kind of like shelling yourself up in a monastery somewhere and uh, meditating. I don't think that's ever how it was meant to be. In fact, the founders of the great spiritual traditions didn't live life like that. Whether we're talking about Jesus or we're talking about Moses or we're talking about uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, all of these people had a contemplative awareness of God or divine or whatever you want to call it, but it always moved them towards at least philosophizing about. And then I would say for Jesus and Moses in particular, actually living out a new reality, but you have to be able to perceive that new reality you want to create before you can actually begin creating it. And I think that perception comes from just the fundamental conscious awareness that God is present in and through and for all things and all people. Yeah, and even even that awareness or that um, entering into those practices for a lot of people feels really scary in their deconstruction process because so many of us have been told that our in, like we can't trust that our intuition or that like something evil is going to come into us when we meditate, <laughs> but then when we actually do it, it actually propels us to better action. Yeah. Totally. I, I remember those scriptures, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And uh, that was the way my fundamentalist Baptist church told me not to trust my emotions or intuition, which right. is precisely the opposite of what literally every mystical tradition at its core level um, has taught to look for the presence of the divine or reality or whatever you want to call it within you before you can accurately perceive it outside of you. Um, and Again, Katie, you raise a good point. Like that sounds like heresy if you grow up in a conservative Protestant environment. But uh, it turns out from all my study that that is kind of the foundation of true spirituality across time and traditions. So, uh, Brandon, where what where did you find the line in the sand or the pivot point where where you began to turn from what you had been brought up in, what you had studied, what you had. Uh, what your foundation was to where you you actually began to um, delve into what people would call heresy. Yeah. For me, it wasn't really a conscious decision. It was me being honest and other people deciding that I had crossed lines or had become a heretic, quite literally. Um, I was just, I was a student at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, studying to be a pastor and uh, I grew up in a, a a church, the second church I was a part of, that really emphasized, um, and I'm so grateful for it, but they emphasized building bridges 
um, across divides. And so like my conservative evangelical pastor had had conversations with people like Brian McLaren publicly. And I thought that was crazy. Um, and, and he disagreed and would have said Brian McLaren was a heretic, but he was willing to engage him in conversation. And um, so I went to Moody with a little bit more openness than the average evangelical. And I started a podcast and a radio show on campus my freshman year, where that's what I did. I would reach out to these big name theologians, people we thought were heretics at Moody, people like N.T. Wright and people like uh, Brian McLaren and Doug Paget and those folks. And I would interview them, ask them the basic kind of theological questions you would expect a conservative evangelical to ask them. And what I consistently found was one, that they actually had answers that reflected Jesus and scripture. Um, the straw man of progressive Christians for, for evangelicals is that we just throw out the Bible and don't really care about Jesus or tradition or anything like that. And that's not what I found when I was actually conversing with these folks. And then uh, I also found that they were so compassionate and loving and not afraid. And as I was experiencing that, uh, Moody started literally uh, called me into the dean's office and basically said, because you're having conversations with these people, we're not sure that you can stay as a student here because you're going to begin aligning. Uh, they saw like inevitably that these people had a more compelling message and I was going to end up aligning with their theology instead of Moody's theology. And so really just because I was having conversations, I was being threatened with expulsion and I was literally being called heretic by classmates. And when I saw my institution and my people reacting with such fear to my simple curiosity and wi my willingness just to talk to somebody who might see things differently, that began to raise some real questions in my head because I, one of the scriptures that has gotten me through life in my whole journey thus far is from 1 John where it says, God is love and perfect love casts out all fear. And so really my freshman year at Moody, I began to see lots of fear from my evangelical world and lots of love from this other broader world. And I began to question whether or not I wanted to be aligned with the people who were afraid and who were willing to demonize those who talked and believed and had conversations with people that saw things differently, or if I wanted to be aligned with the people that actually sounded like Jesus and also didn't seem very afraid when they were discussing these concepts of God and spirituality and faith. And so it was really over those four years of college that I began my deconstruction process, continued to, uh, over my four years, Moody tried to expel me six times, all for heresy, literally every time. And uh, by the time I left- Was there like an ecclesial council? Honestly, yes. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. So at Moody, you sign a doctrinal statement to enter, and to graduate, you have to sign the exact same doctrinal statement. And uh, first of all, that's insane. What academic institution says, we want you to come in and leave with the <laughs> same thoughts. Um, but they were really worried, and I was a little worried that I wouldn't be able to actually sign the statement at the end of my four years. And so I would go sit between the dean of students and the chaplain, and I met with the president. And um, before they graduate, they literally had uh, faculty in a room, and apparently they discussed the students that are on probation and might not graduate again. Not because I was doing drugs or anything fun, but because 
I was talking to Brian McLaren. Like, are you kidding me? So, because you're talking to like the NT right, who I, who I don't think of as progressive, right well, at all. Yeah, I mean, he was a big deal at Moody. For uh, we brought him to campus, and they literally the next day after NT Wright spoke, they did an event that all students were required to go to called the Right Response. Oh and, my gosh! And they literally wow. just refuted his terrible theology. So. I'm I'm opposing this just on the pun. <laughs> yeah, like, just, on the pun alone. honestly, it was terrible. And, you know, I used to think that Moody was a bastion of of grace in the sea of um, Protestant seminaries. <laughs> you know, I thought oh so God. too. I went there because one, Moody's big pull is that it's in the heart of downtown Chicago, which honestly is a terrible strategy for them. Because that was the other thing: is like you don't put a fundamentalist school in the heart of one of the biggest cities in the country because as soon as the students walk off the campus. You're in a real world and you're having experiences that directly contradict your beliefs and theology that you're being taught in the classroom. So that was Moody's, I think, big downfall. And since I've graduated, I've literally, there's groups on Facebook of hundreds of Moody heretics. There's literally a group called that um, of people that had the same kind of experience as me, like just being in Chicago, seeing God in all the places God wasn't supposed to be, according to our theology. That's enough to get somebody to say, I'm not going to believe this crazy brand of Christianity, no offense to any evangelicals listening, but, uh, and embrace a more progressive, inclusive, open version of faith. Well, it, you know, it sounds like you're, um, you're finding, I don't, I don't know if I'm worrying this correctly, so uh, help me out. But it sounds like you're also finding, uh, again, that um, transition from contemplation to action. Yeah. Right. In our context today, like Jesus had his, Jesus had his context, you know, Paul had his context and like, and we have our context. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. And I, I think that's, I think that's probably the most authentic, it always sounds uh, arrogant to say it that way, but I think that's probably the most authentic reading of Jesus is Jesus didn't come to create a religious movement. He came with, again, a sociopolitical method message and method that can be contextualized into any religion or any culture. And so I think it's the job of every generation in every culture um, to take that message and say, what does this mean in 21st century United States of America in the middle of uh, maybe the collapse of American democracy? What does it look like for people to take seriously the red letters of this revolutionary from the first century who's changed the world? And I think oftentimes those who ask that question will be led in a path that actually puts us in opposition to the institutions that uh, bear the name of Christianity and claim the power of the way of Jesus. Well, Brandon, um, I, I don't often speak for our listeners, but I, I'm going to tell you that they're going to enjoy all of this. And I know that they're going to want to check out your work if they haven't yet already. So uh, please remind them where they can get a hold of you if you want them to. Uh, they're good people though. So, um, and, and if you have any projects that are coming up or, or that you've just recently done that you want to, um, that you want to talk about. Totally. Yeah. So anything you want to know about me can be found at brandonrobertson.com. That's books and podcasts and all of that good stuff. But then, uh, I've also been spending an ungodly amount of time on TikTok lately. Um, and so I noticed that. Yeah, I, I love it. It's powerful. Um, it's so much fun. And so people can come over to Reverend Brandon Robertson on TikTok and uh, get involved in some of the, the heated debates between me and conservative 15 year olds. So that will be fun. 
<laughs> so two points of clarity there. Brandon, will you kindly spell your first name? Thank you for that. It's B-R-A-N-D-A-N Robertson.com. And I I've I've opened TikTok one time and it kind of scared me. Derek, are you on TikTok? I am, but I'm not an active participant. Yeah. Okay. So y'all y'all are convincing me. I'm gonna check it out and <laughs> check it out. And um Brandy, to. can I put in a plug for one of your books? For sure. Anytime. Yeah. So you should all pick up True Inclusion. Well, thank you for that. Everyone should pick up True Inclusion. Yeah, everyone should pick up True Inclusion. That's uh, that's probably how I first got to know you was in, uh, in reading that book and talking about different ways to be inclusive. I think specifically in a church community, but it's definitely not limited to a church community. Totally. And if I'm right, I think we have a course coming out uh, uh, soon about True Inclusion if people want to get involved in that too. Yeah? Yeah, we can put the, the link in the show notes for people. Cool. Yeah, it's been so great awesome. to be able to work with you on putting together a little curriculum to help people think about what it means to be intersectionally inclusive. So yeah, it's it's super complex and fun. So awesome. Well, th- thank you, Brandon, for coming Thanks, on. Brandon. Appreciate your time. You it's so good to be yeah, here. It's been smoking hot, man. I really <laughs> appreciate it. Serious. That, that was that was great. I, I, um, I don't think I was in that one. Was I there for that one? I don't think I was there. Were you talking? I, I didn't hear you. <laughs> Maybe my mic wasn't plugged in. That might have been the problem. Oh man, Giles. <laughs> no, it was it was really fun for me to be able to talk to Brandon in this way. I've known Brandon for a few years. So yeah, thank you so much, Brandon, for um, kind of sharing some of your insights and story and journey with us. I bet he likes the Messiah though. Uh, are you going to hold that against me? Yes. I, I mean, more normal people like that, Joe. I, I just can't imagine. Uh, whatever. I, whatever. Let's, can we just move on to our topic? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's okay. a good idea. That's a good idea. Who, who's going to introduce the? You do it. Go for it. Tell us what it is, man. Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to talk about the parable of the prodigal son. And I love personally, I love the prodigal son because the prodigal son illustrates that people were never separated from God, but only in their own mind. Yeah, I, I have said before that um, to me, if, if all we had of the red letters, if all we, all we had was from the teaching of Jesus was like the prodigal son. I mean, I think that in itself, if you think about the culture that it was spoken into, what it says about the father, because he's telling this parable, it's actually part of a, tr- a trilogy, right? A trio mm-hmm. of parables. And uh, each one of those three parables is kind of making a similar point, but in a different way about like, he's saying, this is what God is like. And, and to me, it's such a beautiful thing because what it does, it just destroys this idea that God is wrathful and angry uh, because God doesn't, because God in the, is represented by the father in this story. Right. And, and um, there's the only person who's calling out for judgment or, or, any kind of justice or, or payback is not the father. It's the, the older brother. And I love that. I just, to me, that's such a powerful, powerful parable. I think it's a beautiful picture, uh, of God being a, a loving father, a, a God who doesn't judge, who doesn't condemn, who doesn't even, even not even a little bit, like he doesn't even go, yeah, I told you, I knew yep. you'd come back. Yeah, there you go. You know, you screwed up. I mean, there's none of that. It's just, you know, celebrate your back. Let's have a party. Listen, one time I preached this at a revival and, and, and it was the biggest altar call that I ever had. 
you know, because it, it, it it's this whole thing about the father seeing his son coming to him. Now I'm going to the end of the story to illustrate this point, but it, it basically this father, every day he's standing on the driveway and he's looking out and he's saying to himself, today is the day that my baby comes home. Mm. Today is the day. Yeah. And, and he, and he, and he did that faithfully. So when the, when the son actually came to himself and came home, Oh boy, I, I'm I'm having I'm having preaching flashbacks here. I, I'm, I'm boy, I'm looking for I'm looking at I'm looking for my organist. You know, <laughs> start singing a song, right? Ah! <laughs> before we um, before we go on on this parable, can I just say something in general about parables? And I think people need this to as a reminder that that parables are here yes to be teaching tools and anyone who draws too much theological doctrine and dogma from it i think is kind of missing the point of a parable it's to get us right. to think and so <laughs> even as great i mean i think i think this this parable is is a great thing i, I think maybe star maybe katie's going to have a, a little different take from what i hear in our notes but um I think it's a great parable, but I don't, I would never want to draw too many conclusions theologically based on them. And I think that's what too many people do. So just a reminder that there are many ways to interpret parables, many angles to come at them. And I think the layers of meaning are there so that we don't get too dogmatic about them and just allow them to, to help us to get us to think they're almost like um, a Buddhist cone, which is going to get us to think a little bit differently and they don't really give you the conclusion. They make they make you tease things out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I like that. And I, I think another important debate in parables, there's not one way to interpret them. There's actually a lot right. of debate in parable theory. And it, Keith kind of alluded to like, obviously the father is God. I actually don't think so. Um, I, I'm not one who interprets parables as, as strictly as an allegory. Like we can say that the father is God and the son is the sun is us or whomever. Um, so I, pref I prefer to try to look at them a little more holistically. Um, and Matt is indeed correct. I actually, I, this is not one of my favorite parables. Yeah. I know. Um, I've experienced it used pretty abusively and the, there's sort of this overtone of, um, well, A, I think the older brother kind of has a fucking point, um, you know, like that, that's something we should listen to. Um, and the there's this sort of overtone of kids are always the wayward ones who do not, who who are horrible and they go off and do bad things. And then the parents are always so loving and generous and just accept them back with all their kind hearts when, you know, there's maybe other ways to read this or understand this. Maybe that son had a really good reason for leaving home. And so if we, for mm. me, if I take it out of the allegory where the father has to be God, then it gets interesting. That's actually good, Katie. I mean, I, I, I've never actually looked at it from, uh, from that, from that standpoint. But w one of the things that I look at is that from, from a parenthood standpoint, it, it, it says a certain man had two sons and, and this is saying that there is no separation between the, the, the love of a parent for the children based on their behavior. 
that's the first thing that I take away from it. And and as a as a father who has five sons, and all of these guys are different, and 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 they all have their own little idiosyncrasies and hangups. There, there is nothing that I wouldn't that I wouldn't do for any of them. And and if they if they wandered off and got caught up in something that was just completely sideways, not only would I be standing on the driveway looking for them, I would have been doing what the older son apparently did, <laughs> because see the older son clearly was spying on the younger one. He knew what he was doing, but. It, it, my thing is, <laughs> I would, I wouldn't just be waiting for my sons to come home. I'd find out what pig pen they were in, and 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 there was a part of me once that would have gone into the pig pen and snatched them out. But now, what I would do if if I found one of my sons in the pig pen, not aware of who he was, I'd sit down in the pig pen with him. Hmm. and try to understand one quick thing if you guys have never seen uh the movie gang related with tupac shakur and jim belushi that is the best cinematic illustration of the prodigal son that you will ever find wow no i've not seen that yep now you now now you're curious (laughs) yes i am i put it on my on my uh my cue there well, so, you know, um, I know we're all going to take a turn and, and say something about it. Like, so I, I hear what you're saying, Katie, and I'm curious to hear more about, you know, the other ways maybe you've heard um, the parable used in the past, maybe to in sort of negative or toxic ways. And, and, and I'm sorry that happens. I mean, but I guess for me, I don't see that that, like, in other words, I've heard people preaching and use all kinds of passages to teach all kinds of crazy shit. And that but I don't blame the text for that. I think, well, that person really wants to see something there that isn't there. And they're using this now to justify something, but that's not what the text is doing. That's not like in this case, I wouldn't say that's what Jesus is doing. Um, so for me, when I look at like, um, if you start in the beginning of that chapter, Luke, Luke, it's Luke chapter 15. Mm-hmm. The reason we get, we get sort of the background for why Jesus tells these three parables in succession, right? So it says the tax collectors and the sinners uh, quote unquote, we're all gathering around to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees are upset about that. Uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so then Jesus tells these three parables. And so yep. in my mind, the setup is Jesus is hanging out with sinners. Pharisees are pissed off about that and don't, don't get it. They're like, Hey, Jesus, you know, you're supposed to be this holy man. Why, what are you doing hanging out with these sinners? So he tells the first parable, which is about, um, a shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes out to find the lost sheep. And then the second one is a woman, which I think is fascinating, by the way. So we have, we have three things, a shepherd, a woman, and a father, which in, if, you know, in sort of Trinitarian thought, that would be the son, shepherd, the shepherd, the spirit, which is a woman. So God is represented as a woman. And then the final one, the father. But I digress. So then the second one is a woman who's, who's lost some coins and she sweeps the whole house so she finds the coin. And then we get the longer one, which is this one, the prodigal son, which is the longer sort of story, which has already set the pattern that, um, you know, I, I would, I would say that it is saying that it's sort of that God is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to go to find the lost sheep or 
God is like the woman who lost the coins and swept the house until she found the one coin and then rejoiced because she found that one coin, even though she had all these other coins. And then the prodigal son story, which is fascinating because I don't think the prodigal son is the, he doesn't correlate to the, to the lost sheep or he doesn't correlate to the lost coin because the father, as you mentioned, Derek, the father doesn't go and seek after the, the, um, the prodigal son. He stays home and he just waits for the son to come home. And when he does, he, he receives the son, you know, no judgment, no anger, no, I told you so's absolute love and acceptance. Yep. And but the one that the father goes out to to seek out is the older brother. And when he then so now again, so it's 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 if it is God in these parables, if it's God the shepherd seeking the the lost one, quote unquote, the lost one or the sinner as the sheep, and then the lost coin is you know the, the spirit of God is the woman seeking out the lost coin, then it's the father seeking out again, not the quote unquote sinner who was the son who went out and you know hung out with prostitutes and spent his money on the pigs and all this other stuff. Um, which again, the Pharisees would have said, yeah, that guy was a sinner. It's the, it's God going out to the older brother, which I would say is the Pharisees. It's mm-hmm. I think in, I, what I think Jesus is doing in that parable is showing, saying, look, and, and what God is seeking after is the sinner, but the sinner isn't these people you think are the sinners that you're upset. These people I'm hanging out with the, the drunkards and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. I know you think they're the sinners that, that, but they're not. It's you. <laughs> you're the ones, you're the older brother standing on the outside. And God is coming out even to you guys to say, hey, listen, all I have is yours. And, and yep. let's rejoice and celebrate, right? That all of us are connected. We're all human beings. So, you know, we're all brothers and sisters. So that's what I get out of it. I guess that's why I appreciate that parable so much and the trio of parables. Cause I think if we, if we start at the beginning, we can understand what the, what Jesus is, the point he's trying to get across in those three parables. And I think the way it comes across, especially in the third one, in the prodigal son story, I kind of see some like interesting, cool things being said and mercy being shown even to someone like the Pharisee. This is, this is the thing that religion messes everything up because it demands obedience. It demands adherence. It demands, you know, adherence to dogma. Right. And and here you have the, the the older son saying that hey I've followed you I've done everything you asked me to do but the father is saying that my love isn't contingent upon your behavior my love is based on the fact that you are my son and 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 that it yeah. is if you look at it as the father being an archetype of God. This is what's what God is saying that the, that there is no separation or judgment or or favoritism based on behavior, but it, it it has to do with the fact that you are indeed a son, a child, an heir, and 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 so when I when I look at this, I'm I'm going to tell you something. If there is any Bible story that still gets me in all the feels it's this <laughs> it's this because yeah. it, it's the reminder that no matter what i do no matter where i've been that there is a ring <laughs> to be yeah. put on my finger there is a robe for me to wear and there are sandals 
for me to put on. And and that that ring is the signet which represents authority. That that robe indicates the relationship or the oneness of family. And the sandals represent ownership because slaves did not wear shoes. Cool. Yeah. So so when I look at all of these things, I'm I'm looking at that this son had had went off and squandered all of the all he had. See, here's the thing: he was a son, and he was mature. So, so because he was mature, a son is considered equal to his father. So, there's something that Jesus is saying here too: that sons have equality with the father, and sons have the authority to ask for whatever is due them based on inherited right. And that they are able to take whatever is given to them and do what they please with it. Wait, Derek, I'm I've got a little lost there. Are you saying before he came back, or after? no? I'm I'm saying before he came back because the the, it, the story begins. A certain man had two sons, and the, and the one came to the father and says, "Give me my inheritance. Give me what is due me." And and the father didn't hesitate. He didn't say, well, I don't think you're ready. I don't think you're mature. You're not really my son. He didn't qualify that at all. He simply gave him what is due. See, here's, this is a really key thing because religion puts a qualifier on what you get, that you can only get what you deserve if you are obedient, if you follow the rules. But this son asked for something, and the father probably knew what this kid's character was like and gave it to him anyway. Oh, see, this is where so I'm so Derek, I wanna I wanna appreciate and honor that it's a moving story for you. And that, you know, two people, you know, every person can come at this really differently. Um to me, it's 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 this. So parents, parents and children were not equal um, in the in the ancient world, um, in my understanding. Um, they're they're not co-equal. The heir is subject to the father, to the paterfamilias. Um, and we I mean, we see that disturbingly replicated in the household codes, like in Ephesians and Colossians, where everything comes down to one I, man who's I the disagree. husband, the father. I disagree. And slaves. <laughs> well, let me um let me kind Go of ahead. finish the thought and yep. then we'll um, but it's it just in the ancient world in general, sons didn't have equal rights. The father had the power, um, the most power. But the assumption here is that the kid is a bad kid before he leaves. So where I'm kind of and I and I'll say my anxiety has been rising all day. No, we were talking about this because there's so many elements to me of this story that can signal abuse. This is, and I'm getting this from, this is not my original scholarship at all. This is from an article by Marianne Beavis. It's about 20 years old now um, from an edited volume called The Lost Coin. Um, so I, I want to recommend that book. And the first time I read this article, I was like, holy shit. And it's never left. Um, and it's been probably 20 years since I read it. But why did the son leave? And when the son leaves, he engages in behavior that's indicative of someone who's been abused. And then when he has no other options, he comes back and then the father says, look at all this great stuff I'm going to give you. So he just enters right back into that cycle. Um, do, do I think that that's Jesus' original intent in telling this story? No, I don't. Um, but 
I, I have a hard time as, as well as seeing this as like automatically the parent must be kind and generous and know everything. And then the kids just must be horrible. Um, and I also don't want to, um, I don't want to equate sinners with Pharisees uh, as well. I think this can be, we might be able to see this a little more broadly, or at least I'd like to see this a little more broadly than this person than equating an allegory, I guess, with the story. Um, and so that's, um, you know, I think there's some different dimensions of the story. But the um, when the son comes back, no matter how many rings are, are on his finger, he's still not in charge of the estate. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, as someone, well, before I, before I say what I wanted to say, um, I love the fact that on this show, we can have such differing approaches. And I think it helps us see how, what I said earlier about, about parables, especially, how they can be approached so differently. We can get so much out of it because I've never made the connection that this kid is acting like someone who has faced trauma in the family. And I guess I should have because I've worked, I've done social work for so long. I worked in group homes for so long. And Katie, I think you, you kind of nailed, nailed it on the head or I, uh, Mary, Marianne Beavis. I, I haven't heard of this scholar before, but yeah, yeah. New Testament scholar. Um, I think it's, I think that's a fantastic observation because as you were talking, I, I, I was scrolling up and, and reading through the first part and I'm like, this is every group home kid I ever ever Seriously? hung out with. I was like, "Oh my god, this that's fantastic!" But at the same time, I I love the imagery of God as not necessarily one who uh, judges us based on our behavior and all that. So I I love that almost like this dichotomous approach to the parable that we can we can see both and we can go and. And, and we can just be like, okay, I don't have a conclusion on what it necessarily quote unquote means, but I'm glad we have these differing opinions. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I hear what you're saying too, Katie. And I, I definitely want to appreciate the way this parable could come across to people who have gone through, you know, abusive family relationships and things like that. And so Again, as you're saying, that Jesus didn't intend this at all in his parable. This is not what he's trying to say in the parable. But it is something that if you have been through an abusive uh, relationship with your parents, you it you it hits you a certain way. It hits you a different way, and so you might not be able to not hear it without um, having some of those triggers. Right? Is that what you're saying? Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Well, definitely, and just. Um you know, subtext of the ancient world. I mean, that this parable only appears in Luke 15, right? So um, is this directly from Jesus? Is this from another source? You know, who knows? But a culture of hierarchy is so embedded in the ancient world. Is it reflected in this story in ways that even the um, original author or speakers might not have been aware? Right. Right. Because like, the kid, the kid really gets one over on his father, right? He takes his inheritance early before he's died. It's like having an estate sale before someone's died. And then he goes and hangs out with pigs. I mean, he like he's doing every fuck you he can to his father and still has to come back at the end. Right. And so if it is an abusive relationship, then right. it's, ah, that sucks. Yeah. You know, I've, I've never considered it from that aspect. And, and that that is definitely another dimension to be considered. 
But what you were saying about uh, about sons and fathers is, is that in in the Hebrew culture, and this is part of the scandal of what Jesus said when Jesus said when Jesus called himself the Son of God, that that was an implication that he was equal to God, and that was part of the scandal of what he was saying. So so here when when Jesus is saying a certain man had two sons, he didn't distinguish them as children or immature or unready or unprepared. They were sons, which meant that they had the full run of the joint just like the father. That was that was the the what I took away from it. Now, of course, of course your mileage may vary, but what what when he says a certain man had two sons, he didn't he didn't say that they were that they were minors that they were incompetent that they were not ready the the one son asked for his share of the inheritance and the father gave it to him that said that basically everything that the father had that it was subject to a marker call by the sons and that's what the son did now, whether or not he was abused or not, well, you know that we're we're reading between the lines there. But what I'm saying is, is if we if we read what's on the lines, that he asked for what was due him, he received it, and then he took it, and he did something, and and when he returned, the father restored him to his original position because the son said while he was away, even my father's servants live better than I'm living now. So he says in his mind, he says, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to confess to him that I've sinned against him and against heaven. And, 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 and I will be taken back in as a servant. But what happened was is that the father did not, but when the, when the son attempted his confession, the father cut him off and said, I don't need your confession. You are my son. You are my child. You are my heir. I'm going to treat you this way. And that, and that, and again, I'm only saying that's what I took away from it. Yeah, I think where I'm kind of wanting to nuance some of that is, um, you know, Jesus doesn't ever really call himself the son of God um, in in this gospel, but the still everything is coming from the um, the authority of the father. So even if we can see the son is co-equal with the father, which I don't think I don't think I can uh, just in the ancient world context, that's still coming because the father has granted it. So not because there's like in, uh, inherent equality. Like everything is happening because the father says that it can happen. And there's so much maleness in the story. So much maleness everywhere. Um, that it's just like, it's, it's hard for me to, um, it's hard for me to get to the goodness of the story with all of these, you know, with all these, all of these dimensions. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing that I do think is interesting though, and what you're saying, Katie, is to consider like the, um, the implications of what if this was the story of the prodigal daughter? instead. And I know that's not the parable we have, but I do think it's fascinating to think, what if Jesus had said there was a man who had a, a daughter, and this daughter was uh, 
you know, uh, insulting her father's authority and um, not submitting to his authority and and demanded, you know, give me this, give me some kind of an inheritance. And then she went off and lived a horrible life and, you know, um, and slept around and ended up with the pigs. And then she came back. Right now, again, I know that's not the, what the story is like, but I do think it's really fascinating to think of the implications of that. And, and you know, because in the Gospel of Luke, if you back up a little bit before, because this, this appears in the Gospel of Luke. And so this is chapter 15, but in verse uh, 7 of Luke, we have a, an example of where this woman who's a prostitute comes into a, a, basically a dinner party where Jesus is sitting. And uh, this woman who everyone in the town knows, everyone in that room knows that this woman is a prostitute. But she comes in silently, um, begins weeping over Jesus' feet, and you know, so she washes his feet with her tears. She dries his feet with her hair, hair, and it's scandalous, right? The men in the room are like, "Oh my gosh, if if this, if if Jesus knew this woman's story, her backstory, he wouldn't allow her to touch him this way. This is a very intimate thing. This is a very, you know, scandalous thing what she's doing." And so, I, I, in a way, that is a picture, I think, of of how Jesus would have. In other words, Jesus would have, in the same way that he told this prodigal son story about the son, it might have been even more impactful if it was a woman, because even, you know, women in that culture had way less, um, you know, assumed honor or anything. And so, and especially if a woman had gone and done the kind of things, right, uh, that the prodigal son says to have done in this in this parable. Again, so what we see Jesus honoring this woman, he he doesn't treat her this way, right? So I think in, in Jesus' mind, you know, even even if it was a woman, it wouldn't have changed the story. The story still would have been a story of forgiveness and redemption and um, and honoring, you know, the, the the child, whether that child was a man or a woman. But it's it is fascinating to consider the possibilities or of like, wow, how interesting would that have been if if the gender of the uh, of the child had been changed? Well, I think if I think if we do that today, which I think Jesus would be okay with to kind of adapt it for a, a modern age. I, I think I think it would be different if 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 the gender was changed, if if there was changes all around. And I think that's the beautiful part of um of parables, of teaching tools. I, I think we should tell parables and stories like this and uh quote unquote update them so that they fit our current cultural context. I feel like you have a story in you, Matt. Do you have a an update? No, I mean, you have I'm a just... a modern retelling? I mean, well, I mean, <laughs> I wrote one... I'm dated breath now. I, I, I did write one for Pathos just to make the point that um, that even though, like... I mean, you mentioned earlier that the, old, the, the, uh, the older son has a point, and to some degree... I mean, yeah, maybe he does, and and but the parable doesn't leave us. It just leaves us with a day. Like maybe they have, maybe, maybe the father the next day is like, yeah, what the hell were you doing? <laughs> maybe, maybe they do have that conversation. Um, but the point in the in the Pathios ar- ar- article I wrote was that I don't know. Like maybe, maybe sometimes we as Christians like to be the heroes of all these stories, but maybe sometimes um, we're the we're the older son here. And maybe we're the maybe we're not the Samaritan in the Good Samaritan story. Maybe we're the people who pass by first off. You know what I mean? Like uh, maybe we need to see ourselves as the people that Jesus is getting on, and and see ourselves in that more often than not, and and stop being such ju- judgmental pricks. So um, 
I think I think uh, any story that we retell, maybe we need to not not to like diminish who we are and beat ourselves up, but maybe just not be so hypocritical. Well, the older son is what makes the story interesting, right? Like, right. Without the older son, it like if the story just stopped at verse, you know, whatever it is of the end of verse twenty four. They began to celebrate. It would be an exact replica of the lost coin and of the lost sheep. Right. Yeah. This older story is what makes it different. I mean, that's what makes us even have this conversation. So for that part, I'm you know grateful for the story. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, the, the older son to me represents religion, represents all of the the ritual, the rigmarole, the uh, the 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 uh, sound doctrine, quote unquote, and 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 it takes away from from the oneness of, of the familial relationship. In other words, this guy is trying to separate himself, elevate himself. And, and, that, and that's the troubling part of the older son for me. Yeah, I, I would just say, uh, for me, the older son is an example of all of us whenever we are in a place. Because to me, what I've, what I've seen isn't just this parable. I think we see sort of a thread even going back to the Old Testament. Um, like if you go back to, uh, Micah six, eight, where God says, you know, God has shown you a man, what is good and what is required of you to do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And it's that love mercy piece that I think is in view here in this prodigal son story with the older brother. Anytime, because here's the principle, right? Anytime, um, I do something bad and I deserve punishment, but instead of punishment, I get blessed. I get forgiven. Um, I receive a blessing instead of what I deserve. And I, and I get that mercy. Oh my gosh, there's nothing better in the whole world. I rejoice. I cry. I weep. I dance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God. Mercy is so good. Thank you, God, for mercy. Now, when I see you and I know that you fucked up and I see you and you, I know what you deserve. I know what you did. And I know, I know what you deserve. You messed up, dude. You really screwed up. Um, and then instead of getting what I know you deserve, wait a minute, you got, you got favor, you got forgiven, you got blessed. Wait, hold on a minute. No, 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 no. And guess what? Now I'm the older brother. I'm standing outside the party and I'm going, no, 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 that's not right. And so to me, I think it's a point, it's a point that's echoed, not just in the prodigal son story. I think it's echoed in many other places throughout scripture where we are, we are asked to love this mercy when we receive it so much that we would recognize, yes, it is good. It's so good. It's so good. I would, I should want to share it with other people. <laughs> I would want, I should want everyone to experience that kind of mercy, that kind of love, you know, and, 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 and not judgment. And so to me, that's one of the other reasons why I love this prodigal son story. And I love that older brother, because I think that older brother gives me a chance to see me anytime um, I rejoice when I receive mercy, but I'm kind of pissed off when anybody else gets it. All right. I'm, I'm going to say one thing before we land. Keith, you said fuck twice in this episode. So congratulations. I love it. And I think, I, I, yeah, think that, I think just saying that, referencing it might have been my first one. So um, 
to look i waited 100 episodes man i waited 100 uh, 101 episodes, through and now 101 through 200 is gonna be it's gonna be crazy this shit's gonna get lit i know you, you guys are you and I, I are the new wait a minute uh, this, this shit is getting backwards <laughs> I'm, Derek. I'm, I'm, way, I'm way behind my quota here yeah uh, you are <laughs> so so heres heresy 101 begins with fuck okay <laughs> <laughs> so there so, so there we go um before we go, though, folks, I just want to let everyone know that we have a website. It is heretichappyhour.com. And on that website, we have a bookstore. And the, the, the bookstore features all of the wonderful guests, well, as many as, as many as we could do, their books. And they're typically about 15% off. They support the show. They support the author. So if you loved our Heretics of the Week and who doesn't, Check out the bookstore at heretichappyhour.com and pick up one today. Nice. And come and talk about all the amazing books you're reading in our Facebook group, Heresy After Hours. It's a free Facebook group. Over 2,000 heretics like you are in there asking good, lively questions, getting supportive answers, sometimes uh, getting snarky answers. It's all a lot of fun. Uh, We also have a Facebook group that is exclusive for our patrons only. So if you become a patron, you can get into that Facebook group as well. Did someone say Patreon? Oh, hell yes, we did. And if you are a Patreon supporter, we love you. Oh, oh, we love you so very, very much. We want to thank you for your support financially, for helping us uh, continue to do this podcast and bring it to all these lovely people uh, uh, as often as we do. Uh, We um, want to thank you and not only just thank you here on this podcast, but we thank you in tangible ways. You get PDFs of our books. You get Zoom calls. You get bonus interview footage, bonus uh, podcast, um, you know, uh, episodes, that kind of stuff. It's awesome. It's great. Go to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour and check it out. And, uh, then you also get into that private Facebook group where we really get to party. Thank you, Keith, Katie, and Matt for all of that wonderful information. But if you enjoy this podcast, you should go out to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And by doing so, you will ensure that your ass will not wind up in a pig pen eating corn husks. We guarantee it. We guarantee it. Results not guaranteed. (laughs) Every prophecy fulfilled or your money back. (laughs) I think I can guarantee that you will not end up in a pig pen eating corn husks. Come on, Keith. That's a strong guarantee. That seems safe. That seems like a safe thing to guarantee. We're trying to get that rating, man. Come on, come on, come on. Consult our lawyers. Consult our lawyers. 